All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Great. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in this series uh, where we're looking at our future today. And uh, uh, we've been in this for about three weeks now. And we've been asking the question, what in the world's going on? Now, that's not a surprise question. Everywhere you go, every time you see the news, every time you hear about the latest horror, you wonder what in the world is going on. How can this be true? How can this be happening in our world? Well, one thing is it's not our world. Um, and so w many people walk today full of fear and anxiety about the future. They, they, they just walk around going, I don't know what's going on. I'm so freaked out about this. It's obvious that something's very wrong. Or maybe something's actually becoming right. God didn't want us to be afraid of our future. One thing he says, I want the people who follow me to know me to walk into the future differently than those who don't. In fact, it's going to be one of the greatest witness opportunities in the history of mankind. He told us that if we were watching, we would see the signs of the end of times. He said he didn't want us to walk into the future afraid. He wanted us to be confident of what the prophets said would happen what Jesus said would happen, and everything promised in the Bible actually will happen. So we've been looking at the signs. We've been asking the question, what in the world is going on? We're seeing flashing warning lights everywhere. The scripture said certain things would happen, and if you had a dashboard of lights, it's not that one of them's flashing, they're all flashing, they're all going crazy. We're seeing lights warn us. Humanism, we talked about in week one. It's the theology of the Antichrist. It's that religion that says, I can worship myself. I can worship the human. I don't need a God because I'll be my own God. I'll decide what's right and wrong myself. I'll decide if there's a heaven and hell myself. I'll decide what I want because I'm my own God. Last week we talked about that... Um, Globalism was the next major flashing light. The idea of taking a world that's full of diverse cultures and races and people and two different sexes and trying to make them all into one thing. Denying cultural differences, denying sexual differences, denying thought differences, denying anybody who's not fitting in the mold of what the Antichrist needs. And what we're seeing is globalism that they're trying to develop a world where there's no real differences between anybody. No one's unique, all thinking the same. One culture, one race, one sex. And yet God didn't want one of his followers to not know what's going on. The world is being groomed for the arrival of the Antichrist. And I've said it over and over, I believe he's on the planet. I don't think he has uh, made himself manifest, but I do believe he's walking the planet. There's going to be a one world government. There's going to be a one world religion. There's going to be one acceptable thought process that you can speak without being chastised as being intolerant or worse, a hate crime. Dissenting voices are going to be silent until they all nod in agreement. One world religion, one world economy, one world army, one world race, one world culture, and one world leader who will be the Antichrist. 
And we're going to see today something new that we haven't talked about yet. The Antichrist will have one very distinct, very clarified, very, very, um, very distinct, very clear, very clarified enemy. One enemy, the people of God, the nation of Israel. It's guaranteed, it's sealed, without any doubt, almost good as done, I'll bet my life on it, and I suspect you have too. I've never been more sure of anything in my life than what's happening in our world today. And as this series has moved ahead, people have asked me, how can you be so sure? How can you be so arrogant to think you know the future? How can you have so little doubt about the events of our times and the events of our immediate future? How can you do that? And I always ask them, do you know what a covenant is? Do you understand what a covenant is? You see, God made eternal, never-changing covenants that are promises from God. They're not a conditional contract. See, a conditional contract, you and I can agree on something, one of us cannot do it, and there's really no consequence except court, maybe. A covenant is sealed in blood. A covenant is an eternal, eternal promise when it comes from God. So let me explain to you how a covenant worked in the first century. Let's say you and I were going to make a covenant. And I came to you and said, look, I want a covenant with you. I want to make a promise to you. I want you to make a promise to me and we'll help each other. What we would do is we'd go find a perfect animal, a lamb. We'd sacrifice it. We'd spread the blood out. We'd cut it in half. We'd put one lamb over here, one lamb, half, well, half lamb, half lamb. We'd put blood in the middle and the person who speaks the covenant, who asks for the covenant, walks through the blood. And then if you accept the covenant, you walk through the blood. And literally what you're symbolizing is if I break this promise, may what happened to the lamb happen to me. That's the promise. A formal, solemn, binding agreement. And when God is involved, you can add eternal to that. Now God made two but four unconditional, unilateral, eternal covenants with Abraham. And Abraham's descendants are critical to understand end times. If we don't understand a covenant, it's going to be very difficult for us to understand our future. You see, Israel will ultimately fulfill the signs of the covenant in the millennial kingdom. And we'll get to that in Revelation. But they set up the signs of the times and the return of Jesus. The framework covenant is called the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham. Okay, Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, we have a lot of scripture today, which I always love because that means you're not hearing my voice, you're hearing God's. Uh, so we're going to walk through a lot of scripture. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now notice in this passage, God's doing everything. 
Abraham's doing nothing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do this. Genesis 15. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside, Abram. And he said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offsprings will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. This is a foreshadowing prophecy of the Egyptian bondage. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's an entire sermon right there. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, okay, notice this. The Lord made a covenant with Abram. To your offsprings, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, it's a land covenant. Genesis 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout all generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, I will be their God. Now notice, in these covenants, God's doing everything. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make you a multitude, more than the stars. Then I'm going to take you from bondage, 400 years. Guess how long they were in bondage? 400 years. I'm going to take you out with a lot of possessions, and we're going to go to a promised land. A land that I have promised to you. Why is it called the promised land? Because the covenant promised the land to God's people. It's the promised land. The sign of this covenant? Circumcision. Notice the promises here from God. Abraham would be blessed and his name will be great. We're talking about him today. All the world will be blessed because of him and ultimately through his offspring, Jesus. Promise that the descendants will make up a great nation and the promised land will be an eternal inheritance. Not just for a short time, forever. Meaning that not only will Jerusalem and Israel be a nation today, they will be a nation, they will be there in the end times and in the new world all throughout eternity. His promise is greater than just our lifetime or their lifetime. The nature of this covenant, first, it's unconditional. 
It was a very unusual covenant because it's unilateral. Notice that nowhere in here did Abraham have to agree. God just said, I'm doing it. I'm going to make a covenant with you. Here's what's going to happen. Abraham could do nothing to accept it, nothing to break it. Let me repeat that. It is a unilateral, eternal covenant from God himself to Abram. It didn't matter what Abram did. It didn't matter what the people of Abram did. Why did God not wipe out the Jewish people? Because he made a unilateral covenant with them that their offspring would bring the Messiah and bless the world. Now, when they walk through that animal, they're essentially saying, I'll pay with my blood if the covenant is broken. But when it came to walk through the animals, God put Abram in a deep sleep and only God walked through. Abraham never participated in the blood sealing of the covenant. He was not a participant in this covenant. He was the recipient. The blood that would seal this covenant for man was Jesus's blood. God essentially saying, my own blood is going to seal this covenant. It's important to understand Abram is the recipient. We are the recipients. We don't deserve to be part of this covenant. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's not a reward. God said, like it or not, I'm going to bless you and you have to deal with it. Abram, here's what I'm going to do. I didn't ask your opinion. Didn't ask your participation. I'm telling you what's going to happen through you. In this covenant, God made promises, but Abraham did not. I've said that like 10 times, right? We all got that. So the fulfillment of this covenant is God's alone. It doesn't depend on man succeeding. It doesn't depend on man doing anything. No matter what man does, no matter what Abram or Abraham does, no matter what his descendants do, God was going to be faithful about four promises in this covenant. He's going to bless Abram and make his name great. He's going to bless the world because of him. The Messiah is coming. He's going to make his descendants a great nation and give them the promised land for all of eternity. That's what God's going to do. When God made the promised covenant, it's good as done. See, when God makes a unilateral eternal covenant, you can count on it. It's done. Note that it's given with absolutely no conditions. Scripture repetitively states that this covenant is eternal. It'll never go away. This Abrahamic covenant contains three great, unconditional, eternal promises that affect Israel and ultimately the nations of the world. The three promises are seed, soil, and salvation. That's what's included in here. Or you could say it's descendants, land, and blessing. The land covenant. There are seven major features that are unfolded. One, the nation will be plucked off the land for its unfaithfulness. There will be a future repentance of Israel. The Jewish people will turn back to the Messiah. Their Messiah will return. Israel will be restored to the land that it was originally given. Israel will be converted as a nation. Israel's enemies will be judged. The nation will then receive her full blessing. 
The only conditional feature in this covenant is time. We don't know exactly when, but we do know these things are going to happen because God said they would. Israel's repentance and return to their land is guaranteed. It will happen. They will recognize Jesus eventually as Messiah. Not all of them, but some of them. When the Gentile period is over that we've been talking about, everything turns to the Jewish people coming back to the Messiah. The covenant was not literally completely filled at any point in the Old Testament. It has to be a future covenant. Now there's another covenant in addition to the Abraham covenant called the Davidic covenant. Someone from David's house or lineage would rule Israel and sit on the throne forever. The Davidic covenant is, David, someone like you, a king like you is coming, but this one's going to be different. He's going to sit on the throne forever. In other words, David, the Messiah, the leader of the people is going to come through your line. And then as Ed talked about, there's a new covenant a new promise from God. Again, unilateral, eternal, not dependent on us. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. God says, I'm bringing a new covenant. The last covenant you broke, it doesn't matter. I'm still fulfilling it, but just know you broke it. Even though the church shares in the blessing of the new covenant, it does not set aside God's plan for Israel. In fact, it helps define them. These will be fulfilled in the future when Israel is restored to their land, undergoes a national conversion and regeneration, receives forgiveness for rejecting the Messiah, get a new heart and begin to experience the Holy Spirit for themselves and through that understand the righteousness and full knowledge of God. That's the promise that's going to happen. Four unconditional covenants of God. You want to know why God repetitively forgave and kept giving people second, third, fourth, millionth chances? because his covenant is unconditional. He's going to complete what he promised to do no matter what we do, no matter what the world does, no matter how many people turn against the idea, he's going to finish. He's going to do what he said. God is who he says he is and he's going to do what he says he'll do. And no human ever born can stop it, even the Antichrist. These four unconditional, one-way, eternal covenants with Israel will be fulfilled in the future because of the faithfulness of God who made them. He will keep his word to Abraham and his descendants, not because they deserve it, not because they're too worthy for it, but because of his own word and his own reputation. 
You see, these covenants in many ways define our future. God promises to Israel are unconditional and eternal, yet they've not been fulfilled. So we can look at those promises and see our future. Because of God's long-standing relationship with Israel, it also makes sense that literal Israel will see God fulfill those promises. It won't be some spiritual version of Israel. It'll be a literal Israel. Israel has a clear part yet to play in God's plan for the rest of the world. These include future events we're going to discuss through the rest of this series. God clearly blesses Abraham and makes his name great. He blessed his offspring through the fulfillment of Jesus the Messiah. But the last two promises of Abraham are yet to be fulfilled. Promise that the descendants will make up a great nation and that their promised land will be an eternal inheritance. That we will see in the future. Israel is the battleground for all end times prophecies. The people of Israel must be preserved and regathered to their ancient homeland to set the stage for prophetic events. I mean, think about it this way. For thousands of years, people read about Israel as a nation in the end times, being a nation in the Holy Land. And yet they were scattered all over the world. No one could understand that. They were almost wiped out with the Holocaust. What do you mean they're going to have a great nation? They're done. The Bible predicts over and over that the Jews must be back in their homeland for the events of the end times to occur. Let me just show you. Okay, now here's something I want you to see in this. I'm going to put up a lot of scripture. This is a subset of all the ones I could have put up. The reason I'm showing you so many is I want you to understand that God wanted to make sure we knew that Israel had not been given up on. Amos 9.14, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They'll plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them in their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land which I have given them, says the Lord your God. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. In other words, you don't deserve this. I'm doing this because I made a covenant. Which you have profaned to the nations from which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and, I, and which you have profaned among them. In other words, you're reading this and you're like, you don't deserve this at all. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you because to cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. In other words, you're completely undeserving. But I made a covenant, a unilateral, eternal promise from me. I'm going to restore my holiness because you've done everything to destroy it. He goes on. Jeremiah 30, verse 1. 
the word came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Zechariah 10.6 I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, I will answer them. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as there were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. Isaiah 62. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set a watchman. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from all the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove from it all the detestable things and all its abominations. And I'll give them one heart and a new spirit I will put in them. I'll replace the heart of stone with flesh. They may walk in my statues, keep my rules, and obey them. They'll be my people, and I'll be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their head, declares the Lord. In other words, you're not going to be saved just because you're Jewish. If you don't believe in the Messiah, you're going to have punishment. Let me show you one more. The prophecy of dry bones. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Ezekiel 37, 3, he said to me, Son of man, can the bones live? Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, behold I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you, and will cause your flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. Ezekiel 37, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in him. Notice the first step here is the physical regathering. We're going to bring the bones together, we're going to put flesh on them, we're going to make them all gather together in this valley. Then he said to me, prophesy out of the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Notice second, there's a spiritual rebirth. But how do we know this has anything to do with Israel? Okay, some bones in a valley came to life. Okay, God can do that, he's God. That he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That's how we know. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I'll put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So the image that God gave to Ezekiel and to us is that the nation of Israel would first be restored physically. The bones will come together, but they'll still be a lifeless group of people, a bunch of corpses. There'll be a nation that gathers together but has no spiritual life yet. And then God will bring the Spirit into them. That lifeless corpse will undergo a spiritual restoration from God, just like we did. They'll be spiritually regenerated as God brings spiritual life into the lives of those who believe in God. The Jewish people, when that occurs, will recognize Jesus as Messiah, and it will happen during the time of the tribulation. But what we're seeing as the flashing light today is the physical gathering of Israel, of the Jewish people coming home, of more and more people coming home, not yet knowing Jesus as Messiah, but coming home to Israel. The modern return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel has been called the miracle on the Mediterranean. Such a return by a people group that has been scattered among the nations for centuries is unprecedented in human history. It's never happened before. The Jewish people are the only exiled people to remain a distinct people despite being dispersed to more than 70 different countries for more than 20 centuries. Think about that for a minute. The mighty empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greek, Rome, they all ravaged their land, took their people captive, scattered them throughout the earth. The Jews have been running from persecution from the day that things started. Even after they were in new lands, they suffered persecution. There were organized massacres, the Holocaust to lands where they were exiled. For centuries, people could not understand end-time prophecy because they couldn't imagine a Jewish nation. It was so far from, even in 1930, they couldn't imagine it. As a result, many adopted the idea that the tribulation had already occurred and that we're living in the tribulation now. The return of the Jewish people to the Holy Land began in 1871. By 1881, about 20, 25,000 Jews had settled there. During World War I, the British Empire wanted to get support of the Jewish people around the world. So the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour, brought forth what is known as the Balfour Declaration in 1917. In the letter, Balfour gave approval to the Jewish goal of reclamation. His Majesty's government views with favor the established in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, 1917. This declaration stirred Jewish hopes for the long-promised homeland return foretold in scriptures. In 1914, there were 80,000 Jews in the Holy Land. By the beginning of World War II, that number had jumped to 450,000. The Jews were coming home. Second World War and Nazi Germany's heinous treatment of Jewish people created worldwide sympathy for them. 
and a favorable environment for the Jewish people. Hitler's atrocities actually provided the greatest momentum for the establishment of a national homeland for the Jews. The United Nations approved a national homeland for the Jews and British control of the land ended May 14, 1948. The new nation was given 5,000 square miles and had a population of 650,000 Jews and several hundred thousand Arabs. Further waves of immigrants have poured into Israel from all over the world, most notably from Ethiopia and from the former Soviet Union. In 2009, for the first time since AD 135, there were more Jews in Israel than anywhere else on earth. The majority of the Jews have come home. Today in the US, 5.2 million Jews live here. In Israel, 5.4 million. In 1948, 6% lived there, now 40%. For the first time in 2,000 years, the Jews have returned and continue to come home to their land exactly as the prophets said they would. It's a flashing light for those who are looking, those who know the times. Prophetically, the preparations over the last 130 years have been staggering. They keep coming back home. It should be like a red light. The ancient kingdoms, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, they've turned to dust. Can't find a Roman. Can't find a Babylonian. Every other world power that dominated the world, they don't even exist as a people. No one has been more persecuted than the Jewish people, and yet they have a national identity even when they didn't have a nation. Odd, isn't it? Hmm. Okay, the nations that oppose the Jews have suffered economic, political, and religious decline. The Jewish people whom they enslaved and tried to eradicate live free and now remain a very strong nation. The destructions of nation who oppose Israel was foretold by God way back in Genesis. It's a warning that our nation better pay attention to. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. You don't want to stand against Israel. So clearly one of the flashing lights of end times has been added to our dashboard right next to apostasy and humanism and globalism is the light of Israel as a nation that has been lit since 1948. The dry bones have started to gather. Pay attention, those who know. The fourth flashing light that I want to look at today is the coming Middle East peace. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, build up one another, just as you are doing. There will be a time of world peace before Jesus' second coming. We'll talk about a lot of this in the weeks to come. 
But remember, the end times are spiritual events being played out on earth. Satan is preparing the world for his agenda and his doctrine. People need to worship themselves instead of God, so let's bring in humanism. People need to be controlled, so let's unite them in everything, globalism. We need to get everybody to desire world peace so much they'll accept it under any circumstance. They'll give up whatever it takes for peace. In fact, we will water down their doctrine and get them to be so tolerant they'll not be willing to stand and fight for anything. We will prepare their minds for the one who can bring peace no matter what it costs. I saw a stat recently where they interviewed young adults in America between the ages of 16 and 24. And they asked them if America was invaded like Ukraine was, would you fight? 63% absolutely not. You see, if you don't value what you have, it's not worth fighting for. That's exactly what Satan wants. I want you to lay down everything in the name of peace, in the name of tolerance, so that I can then tell you what you're allowed to think, what you're allowed to do. You see, the world is clamoring for peace in the Middle East. What's the one shadow, one that overshadows every other event every day on the news? The one problem that festers and has grown for decades that never seems to happen, the peace effort in the Middle East. Have you ever wondered why? Why does this little nation cause so much division, so much conflict, and so much attention? It's not even close to the size of Texas. It's like this little bitty place. You can walk from one end to the other and sideways. But as the Middle East goes, so goes the world. Once Satan can link the exalted human with an enlightening mind that despises violence of any kind, once people are no longer willing to fight for what they believe is right, the soil is perfect for the arrival of the Antichrist. The desire for Middle East peace, no matter what it costs, no matter what you have to give up, is escalating, and it's being supported by the U.S. now. It's another flashing light for us. In fact, the Antichrist will bring to the world exactly what they want, peace in the Middle East. He will establish total peace in the Middle East. It'll be amazing. The signing of the peace agreement in the Middle East will identify the Antichrist. Because the peace agreement is going to be between the Antichrist, who's now representing the world, and Israel. And it'll begin what the Bible calls the seven years of tribulation. We'll talk about that in Revelation. That promised peace is an absolute lie. Three and a half years later, the Antichrist will declare himself as God, kill anybody who disagrees with him, and all hell's going to break loose as he begins to attack God's people, the Jewish people. Regardless, the need, expectation, and hope for peace in the Middle East is one of the prophetic signs that we have to pay attention to. The last flashing light I'm going to talk about today is about the rebirth of the Roman Empire. Remember from several weeks ago, we spoke how there would only be four world powers in the history of man. Four powers that control the world at any one time. In order, they were predicted. The last one was the Roman Empire. Not since the Roman Empire has the entire world been under the reign of any one country, one establishment, or one leader. 
The ancient manuscripts from God that we call the scriptures clearly tell us that as we approach end times, we'll see the old Roman Empire start to gather together and coalesce in unity and purpose. In Jesus' days on earth, the great world power was Rome, and they held in captivity opposition to the Jewish people. When they entered a time of the Gentiles, but as we get to the final act of God's drama, we're going to see these two entities reform for a final battle. As the end times begin to unfold, global alliances will emerge as nations scramble for political power, dwindling economic resources, money, oil, gas, and other things. Out of this quickly shifting change, a coalition of nations headed by 10 leaders will emerge to protect the interests of the West. It'll be a rebirth of the Roman Empire, led by 10 leaders, 10 different nations. In Daniel 7, he sees the vision of the four earthly Gentile kingdoms, but it is the fourth and last kingdom that scares him the most. So he asks for an explanation. Let's look. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. He shall think to change the times and the law. They will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time, three and a half years. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed in the end. And the kingdom and the dominion of the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven has been given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom. And all the dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In other words, I could handle the first three. But this rebirth of the Roman Empire, it's too much. Most people who study prophecy believe that the European Union is going to fill that need for nations to come together appears to be the seed of what the Bible protects, what the Bible says. Europe, 20, 35 years ago, was a whole bunch of independent nations who didn't even talk to each other. Now you can go from one to the next without any kind of passport. They share the same economy. They share the same uh, financial system, the euro, all that. So it's all coming together. Okay, what's right in the middle of Europe? Rome. What does God say is going to happen? A rebirth of the Roman Empire. No one knows how long it will take, but when it's fully developed, this Western bloc will constitute the revived Roman Empire and have the political power necessary to control the Mediterranean. Okay, where's the peace of the Middle East going to come from? The ten-nation bloc in Europe. What's going to happen to three of them? The Antichrist is going to take them out. How does that happen? Don't know. There's ten horns. Another leader will arise after them, different from the others, and he'll put down three kings. Okay? The Antichrist will eventually be able to seize control of the ten leaders and consolidate power very much like the Roman Empire did in the past when it got rid of the Senate and established, I think, Julius Caesar as king. Also notice something else about this fourth kingdom. When it's reborn, it's going to be unstable. 
See, this is interesting because what God says is not only is this kingdom going to be reborn, but it's going to be unstable. It's going to have eternal internal conflict. Daniel 2, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze will rule over all the earth. And there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all things. And you, shall, uh, and you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. In other words, there's this big nation rising, but its foundation is made of clay and iron. It's a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of iron will be in it, but just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay, the toes of the feet were partly iron and partial clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. In other words, it's held together, but just barely. Just enough for the Antichrist to take control. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so shall they mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. In other words, nations will marry together. Ethos, cultures will marry together, but they won't fit. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. In other words, in the end, Israel wins. The reborn Roman Empire will appear strong, but it's not. Its foundation is flawed. What we're seeing in Europe right now, a mass migration of those from the lands of Islam living and being moved into Europe. Two cultures with God said would never mix. They're technically living in those countries, but they're not mixing. They're not fitting in. They're not adapting to the culture. Masses of migrant Muslim and Islamic people have moved into Europe, but they're not there to become European. They're technically living there, but they're culturally very distinct. They're the clay from the south that will not join or marry well with the iron of the old Roman Empire. Europe is being reshaped in front of our eyes. This very minute, they're trying to embrace an incorporation and migration of people from countries of clay. The last Gentile world power will fall as Jesus himself destroys its leader, the Antichrist, and the Roman Empire to establish the kingdom forever. You see, our world is headed to a dramatic final act based on God's drama and his patience, and the warning signs are everywhere. Notice many focus on the various wars, but Jesus said don't. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Jesus literally said, ethnos shall rise against ethnos. And basilia against basilia. The Greek word ethnos comes from the world where we get ethnic. And basilia from the word basilica. In short, Jesus was saying there would be an increase in ethnic and religious wars. Both world wars were a result of ethnic conflict. Many regional wars since then, Saddam Hussein's campaign against the Kurds, have been a result of ethnic clashes. 
or in the case of the Kosovo crisis, a showdown between religions. Increase of this kind of activity and suffering is another sign that we live in the end times. There are many more lights that we're not going to have covered. There's so many, we'd be here forever. Well, not really, because he'll be back before we finish. Other signs. Martyrs for the faith will be killed. Not just killed, killed in a very specific way. Revelation, then I saw thrones and sealed on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast and its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. In our lifetime, we are beginning to see Christians beheaded for their faith. Not killed, not crucified, beheaded. Increase in earthquakes, famine, natural disasters, we've seen those. Signs in the skies, the stars, the heavens, we'll get to that in Revelation. Race wars, economic wars. The wars that are occurring now is not really nation against nation. It's ethnos against ethnos. It's religion against religion. The gospel reaching the world. We now have the technology to get the gospel into every person's hand. The promise that societies will live is in the time of Noah and in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah. We are meeting that expectation in spades. It's incredible. The alignment of the world nations, not just Rome, but every other nation mentioned in Scripture for the first time in world history is aligned exactly as Scripture said they would be. We'll see in Revelation, Persia is Iran. Ethiopia and Libya are there. Gomer is Germany. Tagarma uh, is Turkey and southern Russia. The army of the northern Russia. China, the army of two million men. Our world exactly aligned as scripture foretold thousands of years ago. Just look at Germany. Think about Germany. After World War I, totally devastated. Reborn again. Strong anti-Semitic. Brings on the Holocaust. Destroyed again, comes back strongly anti-Semitic. As far as Germany goes, historically, she has always been anti-Semitic and now, along with France and other European countries, has a huge Muslim population and is moving away from U.S. influence. The nation of Turkey, just as the prophets foretold, Turkey was a pillar of stability in NATO just 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. A pillar of NATO, clearly aligned with the West. Now at the center of the last days of prophecy, the chaos there will continue as Turkey has become increasingly hardline Islamists, much like Iran. It'll eventually become an ally of Russia and Iran and will not be in NATO, scriptures tell us. We see the prophecy in Revelation 9 where four nations are named. The Euphrates is now a river completely bounded by Islam. There are four Islamic countries whose land is the river Euphrates, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. The prophecy speaks of four fallen angels who've been bound or restrained from doing their evil work of violence, but when they are released, they unleash such a contagion of violence there, four countries, four angels, that it emanates out into the world from the Middle East epicenter until a third of mankind is affected and killed. 20 years ago, no one would have suspected Turkey of being involved in anything like that. 
Now it's inevitable. The world's changing. Things are aligning. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. We've talked about that. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Peter says this, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully conformed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture ever came from someone's own interpretation. You see, we need to heed the prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our heart. Peter's not talking about what's happening in our world. He's talking about what's happening in our hearts. Even if a person is believed, saved, baptized in the spirit and destined for heaven, some will be walking on earth as if they haven't seen any of the signs. They literally have all the light in the world and they're walking in darkness. Walking in darkness as a believer does not mean you won't be accepted into heaven. But it means you'll be stumbling and groping while on earth when you could be serving the king. If you're not understanding what's going on, if you're fearful or confused, that's not where God wants his people. You see, a covenant with God is as good as done. His covenants with Abraham, David, the Jewish people, and us are playing out every day. Truths can give us hope, peace, confidence as we see the world around us crumble just as God said it would. We don't have to walk in darkness and confusion because he's revealed to us what's going to happen. As we approach end times, as we see humanism, globalism, the gathering of God's people in the promised land, the organization of the reborn Roman Empire, signs in the heaven and so many others, make sure the morning star is rising in your heart. And God's light is shining through you in the darkness. Final words of Revelation. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. God has, adorned, has ordained covenants. They are as good as done. Everything is aligning. Jesus is returning very soon. The rapture is next. Next in our future and next in our series. We're going to spend two weeks on it if we're still here. How can we be sure? How can you be so sure that you know what's going to happen in the future? Because my God wanted me to be sure. I know what a covenant means. I know what the word of God means and I know what a promise of God is. He's established a unilateral eternal covenant in his name. Nothing is ever more sure than that. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you did not want us to be afraid. You did not want us to be confused. You did not want us to be walking in darkness. Yet many Christians, God, who are bound for heaven, full of the spirit, are acting as though they're totally unaware of the times. God, this is our greatest opportunity to be witnesses for you, to walk confidently in a world that's anything but confident. 
to hold on to truth in a world where it may cost you your life, to refuse to submit to the ways of the Antichrist or to buy into his theology, to be prepared in our hearts and in our soul to do whatever you need us to do in these end times. We don't say it like it's some Hollywood movie, God. It's very real. It's very true. It's very promised. And it's very much happening. So God, have us all where you'd like us to be. Move us in our hearts. Help us, God, to be bold, bold for you. And we ask it in Jesus' name.